0: Heavenly Father, we call upon You now, and we ask that You would just reveal Yourself to us afresh, that You would show us Your truth. Lord, we've come here not to check off uh, tradition, not to uh, just say that we went to church, but we've come here to receive instruction, we've come here to receive encouragement, love, and hope. And I pray, Lord, that in this portion of your word as we open it today, that even as we study history and study um, some difficult portions of Daniel, that you would give us hope and focus for the future. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You're getting a big handout today, double-sided and then some. no PowerPoint today, so you're going to want to follow along on the handout closely because we're going to be walking through some very unique portions of the Book of Daniel. And um, but before we get there, before we get there, I wanted to um, bring up something that, in fact, is being brought up in churches nationwide in the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, in fact. Uh, this issue was probably brought up at about 50% of Catholic churches this last Sunday, and uh, I know many Christian churches have also been bringing it up from time to time. And, and today is the day that that I think we ought to address it. You see, in the in our national news, there's there's much to be found there, and sometimes much that is that is ignored. Uh, but in our national news spotlight. We not only have a political race going on, but we have a very unique um, policy issue that our legislators are debating. And it concerns a contraceptive mandate on our health care policy. Some of you may be familiar with this, others of you won't. But let me give you a little bit of a backstory. Our nation has enacted. A new healthcare program this last year in 2010, and among the mandates of that program, we're starting to learn more of it as a as a, nas- as a nation. And as we're learning more about this mandate, we're coming to learn that the president has certain executive powers to authorize or, or compel uh, certain uh, things to be covered in among uh, healthcare companies. Among them, right now is an issue in which the President has issued an order uh, that all um, insurance companies must provide in their health care plans, in every health care plan, must provide contraceptive care, which includes um, abortion pills like RU-486. They put that under contraception. Um, and, in fact, this has gone even further than that. Up until last week, the President had uh, told churches and Christian universities and Christian charities and religious groups of all kinds, religious organizations of all kinds, that if you are to give, that, 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 that you are to offer health benefits to your employees and you are to pay for those premiums and that those premiums are to cover this contraceptive care which includes objectionable material to most Christians, the RU486 abortion pill. And so Christian, the Christian church and really the Catholic church has risen up and said, wait a minute, Mr. President, abortion goes against our convictions. Abortion is something that, that we do not support. We believe it to be the murder of an unborn child, so, Mr. President, how can you force us to spend money on a health plan that will that can be used to receive free contraceptives, including the free right to abort an unborn child? In response to that. Um, well, actually, you know, this, this issue has been going on now for actually some time. It's been in the national spotlight now for just these last couple weeks. But in fact, I've been following this issue since November. And I was impressed upon it uh, by uh, a journal called First Things. And I wanted to read you a quote from uh, a man by the name of Robert uh, Schwarzwalder and Julia Kiwit. They write, and I've got it on your outline there. They write, November 28, 2011... Quote, every Christian school in the nation that offers insurance to its employees or students will be affected by the 2010 health care law, and no Christian organization in the United States should be comfortable with the requirements that that insurance must cover abortions. And uh, some things have changed since then, uh, especially in this Actually, in this last week, some things have changed. Now the President has issued a, a new Mandate that says, okay, he's responding to the church and he's responding to the uprise of Catholics and Christians. And he said, okay, fine. Uh, we won't require the Christian organization to uh, pay for that contraceptive and abortion care. Instead, we will simply tell the health care company, you must provide it to them free of charge. So the church doesn't have to pay for it anymore. The Christian organization doesn't have to pay for it. Instead, the healthcare company, the president's going to say now, is saying now, you must provide it free of charge to them. But of course, friends, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, Anything that is free is paid for. Apart from the free gift of salvation, which was paid by the blood of Jesus, by the way. Anything that is free is paid for. And it is paid for by the insurance company saying, okay, well, then we're going to raise our premium, but we're going to call it free and hand it over to you to pay that premium and to give this coverage. Now, you might be wondering, why am I spending so much uh, time on this? Well, for a a few reasons. Number one, for Christians who believe that abortion is not only immoral, but murder, uh, this is a completely objectionable component that, that we would have to pay for as a Christian organization. Our church provides health care. and that means that our church who provides health care to our employees, our full-time employees, that, that those employees could then one day use our church dollars uh, to go out and get an abortion, not that they would, but that they could potentially do that. Or that any Christian organization, Viola University or some other nonprofit organization could then pay, use Christian donated charitable donations, and use those monies in a way that would murder an unborn child. It's objectionable, and it's rightly objectionable. And it remains to be seen what will happen on this issue. But as I've said, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that uh, that we're we're treading down a path here of government mandates and religious liberty, of the government telling us what we should and should not do, and the people of this nation responding and saying, "Wait a minute, that's against my beliefs." This is a watershed moment in America. Not to mention the decision from the California Supreme Court this week, of uh, uh, continuing to uh, ignore the will of Californians and to deconstruct proposition uh, all that Proposition Eight had put forward for traditional marriage. California Supreme Court came against it again. So today. Catholic and Christian organizations at this point in time are still going to have to pay for this coverage. And it's not right. We as Christians, we want to use our dollars in accordance with our religious views. We want to invest in things that are holy and good. At the end of the day, we want to hold out our hands and say we just want to worship freely. Amen? Freely. What's interesting, friends, is that the situation here in America is not unlike what Daniel was facing as we read the story in Daniel today? You see, Daniel, some 2,500 years ago, was holding out his arms and saying, God, it's been 70 years, 70 years of exile, of slavery to a foreign power, Babylon, and now Persia. And he says, When are my people going to be able to worship freely? No longer under control of foreign influence. No longer having people tell us who are our gods. Daniel is holding out his hands just like Christians are today. And saying, can we worship freely? Can we worship in accordance with our convictions? In the previous chapter in Daniel, we learned that the nation of Israel had just been celebrating two of her most cherished holidays. The Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But rather than feasting, Daniel was fasting, and he was praying. You see, the year was 539 B.C. And the nation of Israel was still in Babylon. They were still enslaved. Being taken there by King Nebuchadnezzar. And now many kings had come and gone, but in fact foreign power, foreign power's influence over Israel had remained. And Daniel was weary. And Daniel was tired. And he, and he just wanted to worship freely in his temple in Jerusalem. In the holy city. He just wanted his people to worship freely. Apart from Babylonian influence. Apart from Persian influence. And God in Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is hearing his prayer. And he sent Daniel, a heavenly messenger, to speak to him. Some believe it was an angel. I personally believe that the heavenly messenger that was sent to Daniel was actually the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I think the descriptions of this messenger, if you read in Daniel 10, the descriptions of this person, and then you compare those same descriptions with Revelation 1 of Jesus, it's almost uncanny how many similarities there are. And so perhaps Jesus Himself comes and speaks to Daniel as He's calling out, when can we worship freely? Why did he come? Why did Jesus come to Daniel? To give him one final vision. One final vision about the ever-changing kings and kingdoms of this world and to show Daniel just how his people Israel would fare amidst centuries of changes in world power. We are here today in the second part of our series in the final vision of Daniel. The sermon series is entitled Daniel's Final Vision, Part 2, from Darius the Mede, to Seleucus the Fourth, you'll find out who those characters are in just a minute. But so, turn in your Bibles if you don't have it already. Daniel chapter eleven, beginning in verse one, we'll read to verse two. Also, and this is the messenger speaking. This is perhaps Jesus speaking to Daniel. He says, "Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I even I stood up to confirm and to strengthen him, and now I will tell you the truth." Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, uh, excuse me, uh, by his strength through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now our text begins with a simple uh, comment by God's messenger, perhaps Jesus Himself, that suggests that He was the one confirming and strengthening Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede was in power at the time, right then and there, at the time that. Daniel is recording this vision in 539 B.C. And Darius was the first ruler of Babylon after Cyrus the Great had conquered Babylon. Cyrus installed Darius as the king, and Cyrus continued on in his military conquests. Darius was also the king in Daniel 6, chapter 6, who reluctantly threw Daniel into the lion's den at the behest of his pagan advisors. But Darius was pleased to learn that Daniel survived his night in the pit and came to honor the Lord God of Israel. And so Jesus rightly says here, I stood up to confirm and to strengthen Darius the Mede. God can and does intervene, even in the lives of pagan kings, to change their hearts and to make them sensitive to God's ways. Our our, our president today claims to be a Christian. I don't know if he is or not. Uh, I I hear the testimony of his lips, but sometimes his actions don't align with what I think should be Christian uh, principles and beliefs and what I think a Christian ought to do with respect to policy, particularly with respect to abortion. And so I hear the president speaking that he, in fact, is a Christian, but I don't always see his actions lining up with that But you know what? It it, it doesn't matter. Whether he is a Christian or whether he is not a Christian, God says here that he can intervene to strengthen and to confirm a leader. To give that leader his wisdom. To give that leader his principles. And so our prayer should be for our president that he would come to understand God's ways. That he would come to understand the importance of protecting life. He himself said, when he was a candidate for this office, that the issue of abortion was above his pay grade, that he didn't know whether or not it was a child or nothing at all. And if, in fact, you don't know, then you err on the side of caution. Amen? Amen? We should ask God to intervene and to confirm and strengthen our president, to give him wisdom, to... Walk us through this difficult moment, this watershed moment in our history. And our prayers need to go up to Him. And so we'll pray for Him at the end of this service. And at times, God will sustain and strengthen a ruler. And at other times, He'll give him over to His own wisdom. At times, He will confirm and will give him wisdom. And at times, God will say, fine, fine. You can govern as you wish to govern without the blessing of divine guidance. And beginning in Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, Daniel is told about many kings and many kingdoms who will largely shrug off the guidance of the Lord. From verses 2 to 20, Jesus prophesies to Daniel about some 350 years of future kings and kingdoms. And why does He speak of these things? I want to give us four reasons. Four reasons on your outline there, at the bottom of the first page. Four reasons why we're about to read what we're going to read. The first is this. To give us confidence in the prophetic accuracy of Scripture. Realize this. I'll say that again. To give us confidence in the prophetic accuracy of Scripture. Remember that Daniel 11, from Daniel's perspective, is all future. From our perspective, it's all history, most of it. But from Daniel's perspective, Jesus, the messenger of God, is speaking to him about what is coming. And Daniel's looking forward and he's going to describe in remarkable detail what is going to transpire among the kings and kingdoms of this world. Now some might mock how remarkably detailed Daniel 11 is. But we've addressed these concerns before. I'm not going to do that again. And let us remember that if if it is reasonable to say that God knows the future, then it's also reasonable to say that He could give intimate details of that same future. So from Daniel's perspective, he's looking forward and he's receiving intimate details about what is to come. The second reason why God is giving this to Daniel, and this is more to the point, to, to demonstrate how generations of wickedness Brings chaos and destruction on the earth. To demonstrate how generations of wickedness brings chaos and destruction on the earth. A third reason why this vision is being revealed to Daniel to show how Israel will be affected by future kings and kingdoms. To show how Israel will be affected by future kings and kingdoms. And I think this is affected with an A, but I need a grammarian. All right. I looked up affected versus affected. Okay, remind myself. Okay, I got it. I got it. it. A, affected. To show how Israel will be affected, influenced by future kings and kingdoms. And four, finally, to remind us that God will intervene in the last day to make all things right. To remind us that God will intervene in the last day to make all things right. And that's the story of chapter 12 in Daniel. So here we go again. Look at verse 2. The messenger of God says to Daniel, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. And the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece." Following Darius the Mede came three Persian kings, Cambyses, Gamada, and Darius I. And then a fourth king arose. And he was quite a wealthy king. And his name was Xerxes of Persia. Now I've given on your outline something that I, I, I need to clarify here. You might be comparing your Bible and then looking at your outline and seeing some things not lining up. What I've done to help us walk through this prophetic history here is I've included in brackets the historical fulfillment of the persons we are reading. And what we see in brackets is not written in God's Word in the Old Testament. It's not written in the original uh, uh, dialogue of, of Daniel. There, It's not written in the original vision. But I've included those brackets to help us understand where we are. There's going to be lots of pronouns. A lot of he did this and he did that and she did this and she did that and I want to provide the names who scholars believe, and there's there's large consensus here, there's some divergence of opinion at times, but there's large consensus that the names that I've listed in brackets are reasonable fulfillments of the people that we are about to read about. And of course, these three kings, Cambyses, Gamada, and Darius, followed by a fourth, Xerxes, perfectly align with history. And so we come now to... Another nation in verse three, because it says at the end of verse two that Xerxes, this fourth king, through his riches, he shall stir up against all, uh, stir up all against the realm of Greece. There became a conflict between Persia and Greece under the realm of Xerxes. And in verse three, we pick up that conflict. Take a look in verse three. It says, "Then a mighty king, then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion." and do according to His will. And when He is arisen, His kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among His posterity, nor according to His dominion with which He ruled. For His kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. Let's continue to verse 5. Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Who is the mighty king of verse 3? Anyone? Alexander the Great. That is correct. Alexander the Great is the mighty king of verse 3. He is the one who rose the Greek empire into prominence. And as Alexander the Great carried out his exploits, and by the way, you can read about him in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8. Daniel's been talking about Alexander throughout his prophecy. He's doing it again in chapter 11. Jesus is speaking The messenger is speaking to Daniel about Alexander. And then he speaks of the division of the Greek empire. He says his kingdom was divided four ways, but not among his posterity. That is to say, none of Alexander's sons took over for him. Instead, the kingdom was divided between four generals. And verse 5 indicates that the king of the south, one of those generals, Ptolemy, became strong. Keep in mind, from Daniel's frame of reference here, when he says the king of the south, Daniel is thinking about which city. When Daniel is considering all this, the mapping and the direction, which city is Daniel focused on? His own, Jerusalem, right? His own, in his mind, what would be the capital of the world? The cap, the center of his world. Okay, so Daniel's looking at considering Jerusalem, and he's. The messenger of God is unfolding this prophetic history for him. And Daniel seeing the king of the south, who was one of Alexander's generals, who came to be known as Ptolemy. The kingdom of the south grew up and became strong, it says, as well as one of his princes. And he, this prince, shall gain power over him and have dominion. And his dominion shall be a great dominion. Well, history reveals that Seleucus one of Ptolemy's princes, one of his underlings, one of his generals, rose up in power in the late 4th century B.C. And Seleucus actually rose up with such strength that he became the king of the north, the king of the, the Syrian empire. And so we have Ptolemy to the south. One of his own generals rose up to become king of the north, Seleucus. And here we come to a conflict of nations that will last For the next 250 years, 200 years. And it is the subject of the rest of our portion in Daniel today. The the story of Seleucus to the north and Ptolemy to the south. There began a struggle for power that would continue some 200 years. Both Both of them had times of war and times of treaty which we will read about in the coming verses. First, a treaty. Notice verse 6. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 11. It says, And at the end of some years, so now some time has passed, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with Him who begot her, and with Him who strengthened her in those times. Okay, what's going on here? In the course of time, Daniel is revealed by the messenger of God, over the course of time, a treaty was forged. We should say a treaty was attempted by the king of the north and the king of the south. The Scripture indicates that this treaty was attempted by intermarrying the king of the south, sending up his daughter to the king of the north. Sure enough, historians can look upon the history of the Seleucid and the uh, Ptolemaic empires and see this happening. Ptolemy II sent his daughter Bernice up to the north to meet with the king Antiochus II. And they tried to forge a treaty. We see there on our outline that that was about 252 B.C. You can look it up. You can read about it. We're not going to go into great detail here. But there was a treaty that was attempted. But the treaty was short-lived. And as verse 6 indicates, she, Bernice, the daughter of the king of the south, she did not retain the power of her authority. And neither he, her father, nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up. And those brought with her. And with him who begot her. And with him, her, her new husband in the north, who strengthened her in those times. In other words, all that is to say in verse 6 that the treaty was attempted and it failed miserably. The treaty was attempted and it failed miserably. And so, the story of the world continues. Verse 7 to verse 9. But from a branch of her roots, Bernice's roots, one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army, Enter the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Unsuccessful. What's happening here? Bernice. Someone from her, a branch of, of Bernice, it says. In fact, it perhaps was her brother rose to power in the south. His name told me the third. By then, the king of the north had also changed hands to Seleucus II. And these men and kingdoms, they warred against each other. And the kingdom of the south prevailed. And they went up to the north and they took spoil and they took plunder and they brought it back with them. And the kingdom of the north, Seleucus II, he came down and he tried to fight, but he was unsuccessful. The messenger of God is revealing all of this to Daniel. We're starting to ask the question, why? Why are we going through this? Just wait. Bear with me. I want you to feel my pain. This time now, in verse 10, the kingdom of the north fights back. Look at verse 10 to verse 12. However, his sons, that is the kingdom of the north's Sons, Seleucus. Seleucus II, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up more strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him. With the king of the north who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy to the south. And when He has taken away the multitude, His heart will be lifted up and He will cast down tens of thousands, but He will not prevail either. We see here another battle that is raging. By now we are in the mid, uh, we are in the latter part of the 3rd century, uh, uh, early 200s B.C. And another battle is being raged. This time Antiochus III, one of the heirs of the Kingdom of the North, has risen up, and he's gone to fight against Ptolemy IV. Another battle, yet again. And there's some strife that's caused. And then Ptolemy comes back with, with great vengeance, and he destroys so much of the armies of the north. In fact, if you look over history, the Battle of, of uh, Raphia in 217 B.C., there was a, a massacre of some 70,000 soldiers to the north. And yet it still says at the end of verse 12 that Ptolemy did not prevail. Despite his great victory, despite the fact that he had slaughtered 70,000 in the north, he still did not prevail. His heart was lifted up. He couldn't take advantage of the situation in full. And by now you're really wondering, boy, why are we reading this? Why is God's messenger giving this to Daniel? What is the point of showing... The flow of human history from king to king to king to king, treaty to treaty, war to war, failed treaty to failed treaty. What is the point of going through all of this? Remember that from Daniel's perspective, this is prophecy. He's looking forward and being told of what's about to come. And we mentioned the four purposes on the front of your outline. We mentioned the four purposes of this vision. One of the first purposes was to give us confidence in the prophetic accuracy of Scripture check that's what this is doing so one of the purposes is already being fulfilled you can take what's listed here in scripture and you can align it with Greek history in the 3rd century BC and you can say my goodness the parallels are uncanny but secondly we're also demonstrating the second portion uh, second purpose of the vision to demonstrate how generations of wickedness brings chaos and destruction on the earth are we not seeing that In the following verses that we've read from 1 to 12 in chapter 11, chaos, destruction, heartache. It's almost like they're they're competing against each other and nothing in the end is being accomplished. But now, we come to the third point. The third point is to show how Israel will be affected by future kings and kingdoms. We've already established points 1 and 2. And now in verse 13, we begin to get a picture of how Israel will be affected by these future kings and kingdoms. Let us read verses 13 all the way to 16. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years and with a great army and much equipment. Verse 14, Now in those times, many shall rise up "...against the king of the south, also violent men of your people, Daniel, shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against Him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in His power. Here we start seeing why we're going through this dense history, which for Daniel was dense prophecy. Some, some of Daniel's people, Jesus says, the messenger of God says, some violent men of your people, Daniel, are going to forge an alliance. That is to say, some Jews are, begin, are going to take sides in this conflict of world powers. They're going to take sides in a conflict of one pagan king versus another pagan king. And the messenger of God describes these men as violent men. Israelites who were prone to violence. Who were these men? They were zealots. They were men who were most likely more concerned with power than they were with their religious devotion to the Lord. You know, the Jews by this time, by this time frame, and we're looking now right about 200 B.C., the Jews by this time frame were under the control of the King of the South, the Ptolemies. And, you know, they enjoyed a, fairly, a relatively free lifestyle. They were under the control of the kingdom of the south, but they had relative freedom. And though Israel was a vassal state of the southern kingdom, they were by and large left alone. But Antiochus III to the north, the king of the north, when he started to wage war against the people who controlled the Jews, the Jews thought to themselves, this could be an opportunity for our independence. This could be an opportunity for us to totally and finally cast off the chains. And so, in an effort to win their independence, they listened to the empty promises of Antiochus III, of the king of the north. They listened to his promises that said, if you you join me, if you join me and throw off the bonds of the Ptolemies to the south, then I will reward you with your independence. I will give you freedom. Freedom to worship. Freedom to enjoy your religious heritage. And so they forged an unholy alliance with a very pagan king, Antiochus III. In a hunger for power and independence, some Jews fought with the king of the north, against the king of the south. But promises, promises by a pagan king are often empty. And while Antiochus III, the king of the north, did indeed prevail against Ptolemy V of the kingdom of the south, the people of the Jews were hardly rewarded for their mercenary work. Instead, the end of verse 16 says that Antiochus stood in the glorious land, which is Israel, with destruction, in His power. That is to say, at the end of this war, at the end of the Jews going with the King of the North down to the King of the South and, and winning their independence, or so they thought, the one that they had allied themselves with, Antiochus III, instead returned to the land of Israel, the glorious land, and instead imposed His evil and wickedness and destruction upon the land of His own mercenaries. And we've got to pause here and say, Christians, be careful of unholy alliances. Be careful of unholy alliances. The promises of pagans. The promises of those who do not know God. Who claim to do good in the name of just humanitarianism. The claims of those who wish to do good apart from God, and who do not know God, are to be suspect. Every four years, we jump on one side of the political aisle. We jump to the right. We jump to the left. And we say, oh, this candidate, this candidate is the perfect candidate. This is the one who will lead our nation forward. And yet every year, our nation's ethics and our economy have been going down. Whatever side of the aisle. We spend on both sides of the aisle. We send our nation into ruin on all sides. I recently mentioned uh, at the start of Daniel, I recently mentioned um, that there is a Christian church that I believe has a a very unholy alliance with um, some doctors uh, who are purporting this diet plan. They call it the Daniel plan. Um, It's not common for me to speak out against another Christian church. You, those of you who have listened to me over the last many years, you could count on one hand how many times I've criticized other Christians. But I criticize this because this plan, this diet plan, in the name of losing a few pounds is allying the church with a group of doctors who are pagan mystics, who are universalists, who when you go on these doctors' websites... Repeatedly declare and openly and publicly declare that they are universalists, that all paths lead to God, and that this church, who has subscribed to this diet plan, and the many Christians who have come under this uh, this way of thinking, have unwittingly been supporting the work of pagan mystics. It makes no sense. Are there not Christian doctors who could have provided the church with a diet plan? Give me a break. I remember uh, the Mormon church and their support of Proposition 8. And I thought to myself, this is so strange. We have one of the leaders. They were the leaders. They were the leaders in leading the charge to preserve... One man and one woman marriage. And I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute. The founders of this religion were polygamists. Something's not right here. Something's, a, something's awry. There's an alliance here that's taking place and you, you look at it and you think, okay, that sounds good, but when you pull the cover back, when you pull the curtain back, you go, how can this be? That a, that a religion... Whose founders were publicly well known as polygamists can now be in support of one man, one woman marriage. That makes no sense. Today, Christians and Catholics are holding hands on this issue of the contraceptive and abortion issue uh, with respect to health care coverage. And I think for a time, this this holding of hands, this camaraderie, it can be a good thing. It can be a, there can be a measure of good that can come from religious groups holding hands on a matter such as this. But make no mistake, evangelical Christians and Catholics have much in disagreement. Catholics deny that salvation is by faith alone. They teach that salvation is conveyed through baptism and preserved through the sacraments. Lest you think, though, lest you think, that I'm being too isolationist right now. You might be thinking, my, Neil, We're going on a rant today, aren't we? Lest you think I'm being too isolationist, just look at the story of Scripture. Open up this book and show me where the Jewish people allied themselves with men and women who did not fear God. And show me where that alliance fared well. Where is it in Scripture that the Jewish people thought it a good idea to to join hands with the king of the north? To join hands maybe with, with Egypt to the south? And show me where it turned out well for them. God told them to be set apart. He told them to be holy. He told them that by their sanctification, the world would be drawn to them. Not the other way around. And so it ought to be with you and I. We should be the ones taking the lead on this abortion matter facing our nation. Christians, not Catholics, Christians should be the ones taking the lead. Christians, not Mormons, should be taking the lead on marriage between one man and one woman. Christians, not anyone else. Let us take the lead in matters of biblical principle. Let us make our case with gentleness and respect. And let the world be drawn to us, not the other way around. If we're to be the salt of the earth, then we need to be attractive. We need to draw them to us. Not walk and compromise and cross all of these barriers that we would not have otherwise crossed just to grab hands in an unholy alliance. Unbelievers... Unbelievers are not incapable of responding to God's truth. They're created in God's image. Just as you and I. And when we present the truth of God with grace, it's not uncommon for an unbeliever to change their view, to change their policy, to change their minds. I applaud uh, President Obama for a recent decision he made to take that abortion pill off the shelves. He supported Kathleen Sebelius, the head of Health and Human Services, he supported her decision to take that abortion pill off the shelves and put it back behind the counter where it ought to be and even further, in my opinion. He supported that, and I applauded him for it. Because he made a wise and godly decision. But today, we're faced with another decision. And we need to ask the question, how can we influence? How can we, how can we persuade our leaders? We can. We're doing it. We have done it. But we don't do it through unholy alliance. We do it by leading as Christians. By being the salt of the earth that we're called to be. By showing God's truth. Explaining God's truth. With gentleness. With respect. With grace. With grace we speak truth. The Jews, friends, the Jews allied themselves with Antiochus III, and it bought them nothing. We come to the end of the story in verse 17-21. to 21. We'll finish here. He, also, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of the whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. And after this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Verse 20, Then shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed. But not in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person. What's going on here? Simply put, Antiochus III, he offered empty promises to Israel. In return for her support, she received war upon war, failed treaty upon failed treaty. And by the time that Antiochus was gone, by the time that he was removed because of the Romans who were coming up against him, the northern kingdom, the Syrian empire, had been pummeled into a state of giving tribute to the Romans. And as the King of the North was taxed by Rome, he in turn taxed his vassal states, including the land of Israel. As I said before, there is no free lunch. As as the, the northern kingdom were taxed by Rome, they looked around and said, give us more, Israel. And in Israel, in, in, in reward for her unholy alliance, she received destruction and high taxes. All of this set the stage for a coming vile person. The northern kingdom was frustrated and angry. The northern kingdom had failed to beat Ptolemy to the south. She had been beaten back by Rome to the west. And now she was being forced to send money to Rome. And like anyone... Like anyone who once had great power, but now had little, the northern kingdom looked for someone, anyone, whom they could control and dominate. And along came a vile ruler, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was too weak to defeat the kingdoms to the south. He was too weak to fight back Rome to the west. But he knew, Antiochus did, He knew he could control and dominate one people group. And that was the Jews. And he put the Jewish people through a time of terror like never before. A time that the Scriptures look at and say, look at this period of time and now amplify it. And that's what it will be like in the last day. And we will come to the reign of Antiochus in our next section. We've read about him before. We'll read about him a little bit more in this next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, we will read about the final world ruler who will come in the footsteps of Antiochus, the Antichrist. But for today, what have we learned today? What is, has what is our history lesson bought us? Number one on your outline, God's people are to be set apart, not engaged in unholy alliances. And I say to you, be so very careful before you join hands with others who claim to be doing good for no other apparent reason but to do good. If, it is not, if, that, if that desire to do good is not built upon the foundation of Christian principles, of a faith in Jesus Christ, then you have good reason to be suspect of it. Number two, when our nation loses its ethical compass, when our nation loses its ethical compass, Christians should be the first to speak and lead us back to God's ideals. And number three, but if we are to be the salt of the earth, then we ought to lead with gentleness and respect, coupling truth with grace. If we're to be the salt of the earth, then we ought to lead with gentleness and respect, coupling truth with grace. I've been a little uh, out of character um, this morning um, Speaking with a little bit more uh, passion than perhaps I normally do. But I do it on the conviction of Scripture. Show me where Israel allies themselves with people who do not fear God, and show me where it fared well for them. God told Israel, You draw the world to you, you carry the oracles of God. You draw the world to you. You make the case for God's truth. They're they're made in the image of God. They can respond to God's truth. You don't need to cross and compromise over so many boundaries. Draw the world to you, Christians. We don't need to be isolationists. That's not what God's called us to be. He's called us to be set apart. He's called us to be holy. But He's also called us to be attractive. Not physically attractive. Not nice hair and nice clothes. He's called us to be attractive in our explanation of God's truth. That the world might hear it and might know assuredly in their heart that man speaks the truth. That woman speaks the truth. And that they might be drawn to your understanding as you read this. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that we as believers would carry that mantle of being the light of the world and realize that we are to be the ones at the top of the candlestick. That we are the light. That if anyone is to see properly, they're to walk toward us as we look at Jesus. Father, there's a lot of darkness in this world You know. You've shown us that darkness in the ups and downs of the kings and kingdoms of this world. Treaty after failed treaty. War upon war. Chaos. Destruction. And even Your people fell into the the lie of that unholy alliance and suffered for it. God, help us to be consecrated people. Help us to be set-apart people holy people, but not giving off an air of of selfishness. Not giving off this aura of being an isolationist. No, Lord, we want to be attractive to the world. Your truth is attractive. It is compelling. It is persuasive. And as we speak Your truth, let us do it with gentleness, with respect... Let us speak truth, but let us do it in grace. And let us draw the world to ourselves. I pray that our President would be drawn to the views of Christians. That he would change his policy based on Christian principle. That is articulated with respect and gentleness. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.